and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk about this whole matter of being poor in spirit. If I had to retitle it right now, I would say the title this morning is Poor in Spirit, Rich in the Kingdom. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, we ask that you would continue to give us insight into knowing you, as some of our songs were just bringing to mind, that the goal of all of what we do here is ultimately to know you. And if we miss knowing you, we've really only done church and we have failed at the greatest purpose. And so I pray that in the, in the time that we are in this building together and as we are gathered, whenever we sing worship songs, whenever we read Scripture, whenever we talk about what Scripture means, whenever we share life here together, that you would draw us closer and closer to you and that you would increase our understanding and our knowledge and our experience of you. Lord, we pray that for all the children who will be part of our Vacation Bible School week coming up. We pray that in ways that are appropriate for each one of them, that they won't just have activities that are fun, but that you will break through into their lives and that they will come to know you in an ongoing way. What a wonderful thing it would be if every single child who enters this room over the next week can pinpoint a time and say, this was one of those weeks where they came to know you or know you better in a way that began to transform the way that we think and act and look at life for decades and decades to come. Lord, since this is our adult vacation Bible school right here this morning, we ask that uh, you would also fulfill that same request for each of us, that we would know you more. Allow us to hear the heart of Jesus these next several weeks as we look at the Beatitudes. And Lord, we continue to lift up those who are around us. We, we lift up Marge Kamen and ask that you would continue to strengthen her. We pray for, for Nancy Merrifield in the tremendous battle against the, the cancer that seems to be uh, just changing at every turn. And we pray that you would give her hope and courage and strength this morning. And Lord, we know that there are several others who are dealing with either financial pressures or their marriage is strained or uh, they're dealing with their own physical maladies. We pray that your hope and healing touch would be unleashed in their lives today. We pray that you would also bless the, the Leadership Summit as we go forward and uh, that around the country and around the world as literally hundreds of thousands of people share these same messages and think about how they can impact the way that they live in this world. We pray that you will bring hope and change and a better future as a result of this year's GLS. Thank you for all of these things. Thank you for giving us the privilege of prayer and bringing our requests directly to you and knowing that you hear them and that you care. And that at times when our prayers line up with your will, you unleash your power in our lives and in this world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to show my age here a little bit, but do you remember or have you ever encountered the musical Godspell? Godspell started as an off-Broadway musical back in 1971, and since that time, it has made its way into local theaters all over the, all over the country and in other parts of the world. It has been revived and continued in a number of different ways. It was turned into a movie at one point. And most recently, there was a Broadway revival in 2011 to 2012. Overall, Godspell found a, a very favorable reception, 
But at the same time, many church-going people were not so thrilled when it first came out. Now, one reason for that was that Jesus was portrayed at times as a clown with followers who were a bunch of carefree hippies. But love it or loathe it, one of the things that I noticed was that Godspell got many people who were not of the church-going variety talking about the gospel and talking about Jesus who otherwise would have ignored those topics. And some of the songs from Godspell had crossover appeal and kept the words of Jesus on the radio for years. One of those songs from Godspell kept playing in the back of my mind this week as I was thinking about uh, this, this entry today into this study on the Beatitudes. And I was thinking about the central statement from Jesus that we're looking at this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That song was a duet between Jesus and Judas called All for the Best, where Jesus sings about what it means to be blessed but Judas keeps adding in his own view that contrasts with Jesus' view. I think this is the way that life really works. We hear these voices of Jesus, and then we hear these other voices that seem to counter that again and again through life. But in All for the Best, Jesus addresses the hardship of life. At one point, he says, your life is bad, your prospect is worse, your, right, your wife is crying, sighing, and your olive tree is dying. You'd bet that Job had nothing on you. Don't forget what you get. To heaven you'll be blessed. And then after each line, Judas kind of interjects with his lines, but together they go this way. Summer's at the sea, winter's warm and free, all of this and we get the rest. Who is the land for, the sun and the sand for? You guessed, it's all for the best. That, that, line, that last line was what was ringing through my head this week. Who is the land for, the sun and the sand for? You guessed, it's all for the best. As if the message is saying that Perhaps the gospel really means that this is just for the best of people and God's blessings are only for those that some might see as the elite of society, which is, you know, a total twist of, of the gospel. Here's the reason for bringing this up this morning. It is far too easy for us to lose the words of Jesus and the meaning of Jesus in the midst of revisionary voices that are part of our culture. So we're going to focus on what Jesus meant with his blessing for those who are poor in spirit this morning. So let me say good morning and welcome back to North River today. Some of you are here for the first time in a long time. Uh, I think my friend Erin gets the, uh, uh, the longest commute this morning. She just flew in from Paris and we're glad that, to have you back and uh, welcome home. It's a good thing. We're going to dedicate Aaron's uh, newest child next week when her husband arrives and is able to join us for the party as well. Uh, this morning, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Unusually Blessed. And I, I was thinking about this, this whole issue of the, the Beatitudes and these very sometimes odd statements that Jesus makes where it, it seems like uh, there's a statement about blessing at the beginning, and then it's tied to something that is often hard or a situation in life that we would not normally think of as the blessed life, but then there's a promise that comes with each one. And so these are unusual blessings that come from Jesus. So that title is based on these opening statements from the Sermon on the Mount, and I propose to you that Jesus is offering a pathway to discovering how you and I can be unusually blessed by God. If you're telling somebody about North River this summer and you're inviting somebody to church, tell them this, that what we're studying this summer is, is about how people can be unusually blessed by God in ways that will really make them have to think hard. That's what the Beatitudes were designed to do. So again, here's this morning's Bible passage. 
Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This morning's question is framed around a handful of questions. The first question is, why did Jesus teach this way? Why did he teach the Beatitudes specifically? Well, here's the first reason. They were meant to change hearts. So notice that first verse, Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, he sat down, and his disciples came to him. So in a, in a private setting, Jesus begins to teach them in ways that he was not teaching the larger crowd. Jesus was always aware of his cultural context. John MacArthur points out that there were four groups of religious professionals in Jewish society in the first century. You've heard some of these names, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. The Pharisees focused on divine laws and religious traditions, while the Sadducees focused on the present. They were, in a sense, the religious liberals of that day who downplayed the supernatural and who modified Scripture and tradition to fit their own perspectives. And then there were the Essenes. They were fanatical nationalists who thought that true religion focused on activism. And then there were the Zealots. The Zealots uh, were, were a group of people who, who wanted to uh, forcibly bring in the kingdom of God and wanted to uh, oppose Rome at all times. In essence, these four signals were continually being sent in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, in effect, said, go back, meaning go back in time. The Sadducees would say, go ahead, it's all about forward progress, forget the past. The Essenes were saying, go away, as they retreated to the desert and to isolated places to practice their faith. And the Zealots were saying, go against, raise up your fist and fight. It's no wonder that Jesus had to, to seek out quiet places in order to teach his disciples and to break away from all of those patterns that they had been surrounded by. The first century movements each seized on one corner of truth while ignoring some of the others, and each one would take their corner of truth to the extreme. It wasn't that there was no truth that was a part of it. It was just when it becomes separated, when that piece becomes separated from the whole message of God or of Jesus. The movements of more recent eras are capable of, saying, of doing the same thing in our day. And so this becomes good training for us to realize Jesus was aware of his cultural context. And he continually seeks to set his set his followers free from the extremes of every group that seeks to fit God into their own neat little boxes that we can create for God. Now, that's not to say that theology doesn't matter. It does. But sometimes we need to separate Jesus from man-made systems where we box him in. So the first answer to that question, why did Jesus teach these Beatitudes, was that they were meant to change hearts. Here's the second reason. They were meant to shake up our viewpoint. So we jump to verse 3 to this first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but when I first read those words, they make me think hard. What is it about being poor in spirit that is so good? I mean, that sounds like a negative that he turns into a positive, doesn't it, at first glance? So we have to work to understand what Jesus meant. The Beatitudes were designed, first of all, to disorient us. Think of the way that these roll out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Who wants to mourn more? Blessed are the meek. Really? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Okay, that one makes sense. Blessed are the pure in heart. That one does too. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
But here's the final one. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Wow. They are disorienting because they run contrary to incomplete or worldly perspectives. Jesus often employs this pattern in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said in the past, but I tell you. What that lets us know is while the Sermon on the Mount is the most loved sermon ever given, it was radical in its day, and it was deliberately taking on misguided religious ideas that were common in Jesus' day, trying to correct some of those misperceptions. So for this reason, we should not be shocked that the Beatitudes make us stop and think. And we should not be shocked to, to realize that we will have to work to understand each of them because our culture is so deeply shaped by ideas that Jesus was opposing even back then. The Beatitudes were also designed to reorient us to the values of Jesus and to the kingdom of heaven. So on the one hand, to disorient, disorient us from any false ideas, but to reorient us toward the values of the kingdom of heaven and the heart of Jesus. Therefore, much is to be gained by wrestling through this series together in order to bring us to a greater understanding of what it means to be blessed in the eyes of God. So here's the second question. What does it mean to be blessed? We don't hear that word a whole lot in our culture and in our society unless you go down south and every day you'll be greeted by, have a blessed day. And somebody will use that very, uh, very openly and very commonly. But the question still is, what does it mean to be blessed? And even more importantly, what did Jesus mean when he said, it is blessed to mourn, to be among those who are poor in spirit, and so forth? So we have to work at defining the concept. The Greek word that Jesus used in each of these Beatitudes is the word makarios. And makarios is a very difficult uh, word to, to get to a specific meaning with because it has a variety of uses in ancient Greek language. It could mean happy. It could mean blessed. It could mean fortunate. Uh, some have even said it, it may well mean lucky. Lucky are the poor in spirit, in other words. Those of you who are old enough to remember Robert Schuller may, re may remember that uh, he uh, had a series that was turned into a book years ago that was called The Be Happy Attitudes. There was a church in the Denver area when Sue and I lived there more than 30 years ago that was called Happy Church. They took the name from this interpretation of the word makarios or blessed in the New Testament, and they said, you know, we want to have a happy church. Now, a lot of people scoffed at that, but before you scoff at that name, think about what's the opposite. Do you want to be part of unhappy church? I have news for you. If I have to choose between one or the other, I want to be part of happy church. And that's, so it's kind of interesting that Jesus uses this term that has some flexibility to it. And one of the meanings is happy. What kind of happiness? I don't think he's talking about a fleeting temporary happiness, but a deeply resounding happiness that goes down to the soul. And I have news for you. That's the happiness that I want. That's the happiness that I think that the gospel brings into our lives. Presbyterian pastor James Boyce notes that there were many forms of this word blessed in ancient English. I won't go into all of them. There were more than 30. But three became most prominent. The first referred to things that are consecrated. So some of you may have grown up in a, a tradition where they called communion the blessed sacrament. 
The second use of that word blessed uh, meant to speak well of someone. So uh, the Bible says, bless those who curse you. But the third usage eventually was changed to our English word bliss, which refers to a state of spiritual joy. This is the kind of blessing that Jesus was talking about. He wants his people to know that they can be deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy. And he wants us to know how we can hold on to that kind of happiness throughout all of the ups and downs of life and all the curveballs that life seems to throw at us. So, to be blessed or happy in a biblical sense means to live with a sense of inner contentment that stems from knowing God's approval in life. There's no better example of this kind of blessedness than Jesus himself. He maintained a profound sense of balance and purpose that marked every day of his life. Think about it. He endured rejection, persecution, and suffering while being in harmony with God at all times. Even those moments of abandonment on the cross were marked by a number of unusual things that come from that blessed life. Forgiving the soldiers who put him there. Assuring a repentant thief that that very day he would be in paradise with him. Urging John to care for his grieving mother at the foot of the cross. Now, this matters because Jesus is unveiling the secrets of happiness in a progressive way that run through these Beatitudes. So, uh, you're going to want to come or watch all summer long because you won't have the hole in any one of these weeks. There's a cumulative impact when we study these eight Beatitudes, one after the other, and our different pastoral team members are going to uh, help me, and we're going to keep adding to what each other teaches. Just about everyone in this life is pursuing happiness in some way. Some seek happiness through wealth, power, fame, or in personal security. Jesus is directing us to ways of lasting happiness by finding the approval of the Lord God in life. The third question is, who are the poor in spirit? A number of questions often arise when we read that. Are the poor in spirit the same as those who are economically poor, for instance? If Jesus simply meant that the poor are more blessed than the rich, he probably would have started with, blessed are the poor. Theologians tell us that even though Luke's version of this stops at that point, that Luke is reinterpreted by the larger statement, the fuller statement that comes in Matthew about the poor in spirit. If it is more blessed to be poor, think about this. Then anyone who allevi seeks to alleviate poverty would be doing harm to that person because our help would be moving them out of that state of blessed poverty. MacArthur even makes the point that we would also be harming in our attempts to help refugees or by building homes with Habitat for Humanity and many other social benefit programs. So quickly we start to realize that isn't the fullness of what Jesus meant. Now, there is a theological movement that claims that Jesus is always on the side of the poor and always aligned against the rich. This branch of theology is known as liberation theology. It finds its roots in Marxist concepts that divide people into two groups. There's always the oppressed and the oppressor. Therefore, justice is aimed at relieving the plight of the poor and taking down the rich at the same time. We've seen some of this displayed in the protests and debates over the past couple of years in our society. But Jesus points us to spiritual poverty when he ties these two concepts together of being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is not a handful of things. 
It is not something, someone who simply lacks drive or initiative. It is not someone who simply lacks confidence. This is not telling us that we should all have some uh, perpetual sense of low self-esteem. Being poor in spirit is a spiritual outlook on life. It is a person who realizes that spiritually we are lost without the help of God. Spiritually, it is a person that understands that left to ourselves, we are spiritually bankrupt due to the influence of sin in our lives and in our world. This is not a person who comes to God with spiritual pride, thinking that he or she is better in standing than everyone else. This is a person who sees God, who sees Jesus in all love, purity, holiness, and goodness, and realizes that we bring nothing to the table that can impress God. To get to this point, we have to get rid of spiritual pride. So I went looking at some other uh, translations of the New Testament to see how they rendered these same verses or this specific beatitude. In the New Century Version, it reads this way, Blessed are those who realize their spiritual poverty, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. There's something about that spiritual poverty concept. In the message, which... Presbyterian pastor Eugene Peterson translated. It reads this way, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. I don't know about you, but I like that. That, that hits it. When, when I get to the end of myself and realize I can't bring myself up to God, I can't impress God with my innate goodness, no matter how hard I might try, when I'm at the end of my rope and I realize there's nothing that I can do either to fix myself or to fix this world, that the evil in this world or the evil in my heart can be so great. I come to the end of my rope. And Jesus says, there at that place, when we get to that point of spiritual poverty, we realize that there's less of us and there's more room in our lives for the kingdom of heaven to break in. Again, being poor in spirit is a spiritual outlook. It is a person who realizes that spiritually we are lost without the help of God. Jesus infers that this is a characteristic that is necessary for entering the kingdom of God. Andrew Tate describes it this way, those who are conscious of their own frailties and imperfections, who renounce all dependence on themselves and all pretension to merit, are weary and are weary and heavy laden, cast themselves at the feet of Christ for mercy. And it's there at that place when we throw ourselves at Jesus pleading for mercy that we find the kingdom of God. I love that definition because it includes a combination of deficiency and dependence. That we are deficient in our own strength in order to bring ourselves up to God. But in that place of dependence, he meets us there. It stands in contrast to spiritual pride that says, I think I'm pretty good, and I've lived a pretty good life. I think I'll take my chances that God will let me into heaven based on what I've done. Being poor in spirit only comes when we look inside long enough to realize, I may shine up rather well, but there's some really broken stuff inside of me. Only God can really fix these broken parts. So I have to trust you, Jesus. I have to trust you as my Savior that you will do in me what I will never be able to do in myself. That is poor in spirit. So here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus responds to our spiritual poverty with the riches of his grace. 
I don't know about you, but I have some wonderful friends who have found hope from being poor in spirit. I've changed their names for the purpose of this message. Jim was broken by the loss of leaving his wife and the upheaval that resulted all around him, and it literally broke him. He began to read the Bible for the first time in his life and asking friends how you find the peace of God. And it was somebody from North River in one of those conversations who said, come along with me. I can help you find that. And his life began to change. Janice had alienated most of her family through her addiction to alcohol. She burned through relationships until a Christian friend took her in and modeled a different kind of life that was marked by a contentedness and a peace with God that she had never seen before and and never understood. And she realized that's what she was craving as she watched this friend. And watching that Christian friend, she knew this is what she wanted and what she needed. And she opened her heart to Jesus. My hope is that by reflecting on spiritual poverty this morning and by reflecting on these unusually blessed attitudes that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, that it will prepare some here for the journey that we will be on throughout this summer as we talk about what it means to be unusually blessed by God. The overall impact is cumulative as each of these blessings from the Beatitudes builds on the previous ones. Jesus responds to our spiritual poverty with the riches of his grace. Okay, one final question I want to raise. How do we become poor in spirit? Or if you think you've experienced some of this, how do we get more of it? The Gospel Coalition published an article by a woman named Jane Tour called Eight Ways to Become More Humble. I'm not going to hit you with eight points here, but I would like to leave you with four of the nuggets that, that she wrote about. And they're rather simple, and yet they can have a profound impact. The first is... Thank God often. Thankfulness stops pride from growing in our lives. Here's the second suggestion she makes. Confess your sins often. Confession is a great reality check in life. And it begins to free us from the the false pretenses that we set up. A third way that we become uh, more poor in spirit is work at listening to others. If you find yourself always interjecting your own thoughts, which is the challenge that I'm always working on in my life, uh, try to listen more. It shows that we are willing to learn from other people, that we don't have all the answers. And here's a fourth way. Make a list. Make a list of people that you want to consider ahead of yourself. In fact, what if we made a list of two people for each day that we wanted to focus on and do something for them that makes us step out of our comfort zone. The more that we practice these arts, the more we become poor in spirit and the more our spiritual pride decreases. So here we are. We're at the beginning of a summer-long learning season about what it means to be unusually blessed. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for the words of Jesus that are both disorienting and reorienting disorient us in terms of breaking apart any of the false ideas that we may have created about who you are or what following you looks like. Reorient us to the truth of the kingdom of God, to the gospel of Jesus, to the purity of heart that comes from listening to Jesus and letting his voice be dominant in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And we ask that you will allow us all to become unusually blessed by God. Amen.